welcome back to this Tuesday's Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I'm your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by the award-winning Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Sudeman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm swell. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. No cons and nons this week. You'll have to wait for our bonus episode on Friday for a review of Michael Mann's latest feature, Ferrari. Today, we are breaking out our top tens for 2023 on this, the first episode episode of 2024. Now, you know, some shows will do their best of 2023 in like November, which is crazy to me. That is that is insane. Uh, a little bit uh, of background on the programming here. We basically have to wait until this week, thanks to the studios releasing so many prestige style pictures at the end of the year. Uh, but we also like to do this because so many of you guys listening out there won't have been able to see many of the movies we're talking about until this week. And, and even this week, some of them simply aren't available. Movies like The Zone of Interest and American Fiction haven't opened in Dallas, which is one of the 10 biggest movie going markets in the country. Uh, the Zone of Interest isn't even on my schedule yet. I have no idea when that movie's coming out around me. Maybe it won't. Hmm, who knows? Roger Ebert used to have a rule about not putting anything on his end-of-year list that comes out in the next year in the city in which he lives, and honestly, I think it's a pretty good one. Uh, frankly, I, I probably uh, put too high a burden on these year-end movies, you know, things that come out towards the end of the year. Uh, something like The Iron Claw moved me very deeply. I'm still trying to decide how I feel about Ferrari in terms of its place in the Michael Mann uh, pantheon, uh, but neither made my list because I fear recency bias contaminating the proceedings. I don't want to, as a scientist, a scientist of criticism, I don't want to be biased when I'm making these choices. Uh, one last note before we get started. We're going to get started here in one second. I'll, I'll, sh I'll shut up and let Alyssa go first. Some of you will listen to these lists and you will say, but what about this movie that I loved or that movie that I just liked it so much? How could that not make the list? And I just want to tell you folks out there that the answer is very simple. The movie you liked was not good, and your enjoyment of it is a sign of your weak character. So work on that and get back to us. Uh, I believe in you, I think you can do it. Now on to the listing. Alyssa, would you like to start things off? Yes, but before I do, I just wanna say one thing, which is that 2023 was the first year in more than a decade that I wasn't a full-time critic. And that means that I, I think I saw fewer movies, certainly saw fewer movies than both of you guys, and was sort of intensely tuned into the conversation around movies in, in just in a very different way than I have been in years past. And so I think it's possible there are holes. Um, there are, you know, I would have really liked to see American Fiction before it came time to do this episode. Um, I would have really liked to see The Iron Claw, Godzilla Minus One. There were just some things that I didn't get to didn't make the list. And so I am operating a little bit more as a normie human than a full-time critic um, in making this list, in doing this podcast. And so um, I I think that's probably evident on the podcast that I've been thinking about movies in a slightly different way. But um, I just think it's worth saying that and sort of saying it to myself as well, because it's been a huge career change as well as just a very different way of doing this. Um, and seeing movies is a somewhat more precious experience to me now because it's something that I have to make time for in a different way. Um, and I feel really lucky to have seen about 50 movies and talked about them with you guys last year. Also know that I hate top 10 lists and cheated every opportunity. So at number 10, John Wick chapter four and Killers of the Flower Moon. They're both too long. They're both a bit morally self-satisfied. They're both marred by one performance I don't love. But oh my goodness, this is a delight to watch a couple of big movies directed by people who are talented, know it, and take pleasure in exercising their talents. And 
Also, I loved watching Keanu Reeves in motion and Lily Gladstone in stillness, the Tokyo Continental fight sequence, and the scene in Killers of the Flower Moon in which Molly decides she just might be interested in the driver who's trying to flirt with her are two of the sequences that gave me the most pleasure at the movies this year. All right, uh, Alyssa already cheating, as is her want. This is a this is an annual struggle. Peter, how many how many do you have at number ten? Do you have you have three, three or four options here for us? Well, I was thinking about doing all of my didn't quite make the top ten slot movies as number ten as like a big blob, uh, but no, I just have one movie at number ten. I decided, and it's Passages, a movie we didn't talk about, and I think I might be the only person on this podcast who saw it. But this is a French um, complicated ro- romance uh, drama. Directed and co-written by Ira Sachs. Uh, it's got Ben Wishaw and Franz Rogowski, and I'm not going to be able to pronounce Adele Exarchopoulos uh, in it. It's about a gay couple, um, uh, one of whom is a, uh, a movie director, and he starts sleeping with somebody else, a young woman, and complications ensue. And it is just a really remarkable movie about difficult and complex relationships and about how desire is both an inherent part uh, of romance and also uh, a great complicator when it comes to dealing with other people and being with them. All right, passages. Very good. Uh, Number 10 for me is Silent Night. We talked about this a little bit on the show in one of our bonus episodes, but I I love this movie, which I have described to multiple people as uh, Death Wish by way of John Woo, which is, uh, I can't imagine two things that would more appeal to me. Uh, as a reactionary who loves the kinetic, balletic violence of John Woo. So uh, Silent Night is is a movie that is going to, once it hits Netflix, is really going to be found by audiences. I was looking at the year-end box office today, and this movie has been seen by almost nobody in theaters. It's grossed like $7 million or something. But it's uh, it's going to be a hit once America's dads really sink their uh, teeth into it on Netflix. or I believe or it has already hit some form of streaming. I don't, well, whatever. Once once it hits a real, not not VOD, not streaming VOD, that doesn't count. Nobody nobody wants to pay for individual movies anymore. That What is this, the 1980s? The 90s? All right. Uh, number nine or whatever, number, the ninth spot on your list, Alyssa. <laughs> uh, is Asteroid City and Wes Anderson's Roll Doll shorts. Um, I know a lot of people find. That's a totally fair pairing. Anderson, mannered and pretentious, but watching Asteroid City and the adaptation of a group of world-all short stories Anderson directed for Netflix ought to make it clear the artifice is the point, right? This is what so much of Anderson's work has been leading to. These are piercingly sad stories told through the kind of framing that provides distance that makes talking about grace, loss, and suffering manageable. I love these as formal experiments. I love them at, for the performances that they provide us. Uh, if you didn't appreciate Tom Hanks giving in to his witchy little granddaughter's insistence that their mother's ashes be buried in this particular patch of Nevada sand, I question the existence of your soul. Wow. That feels like shots fired directly at me. I will say, I, I will say, I like the Roll Doll shorts so much more than Asteroid City because I think the Roll Doll shorts did a better job of getting at the artifice that he was really going for um, there. But uh, totally a reasonable choice, uh, Peter. What's, uh, so what's in I'm your ninth slot? I'm going to pull Alyssa for my ninth slot and put in John Wick 4 and Mission Impossible 7. 
Uh, these are the best action movies of the year. Some of the best action movies I have seen in many years. Both are incredibly ambitious, not just in terms of what happens, the sort of the particulars of, oh, this beat leads to this thing blowing up or this guy jumping this way, but in terms of how it happens. They are visually adventurous films that are really trying to push the envelope of what big budget action movies can be. I really appreciated uh, watching both of them. Uh, number nine for me was Infinity Pool, uh, which is uh, the latest from Brandon Cronenberg. And I always like to say that the Brandon Cronenberg experience is what I imagine normie audiences feel like David Cronenberg movies actually are. I feel like I feel like normal people here like David Cronenberg, they're like, oh, it's going to be weird and trippy. But they're not really. I mean, they're sometimes very grotesque and they they often have, you know, weird body horror things going on. But Brandon Cronenberg is doing different things with light and film styles and that sort of thing that I, I think is a little more ostentatiously, uh, for lack of a better word, artsy. It's, it's a little artsier. It's definitely artsy. I liked it. I also didn't quite know. Like, it left me thinking, wow, that was an interesting movie, and I don't know how to feel about it. Best kind of movie. All right, number uh, eight, Alyssa. Uh, I'm not going to cheat for once. Uh, my number eight is May-December. And it is a movie that I think starts what will be a fairly obvious trend on this list. It's a movie that probably shouldn't work. And it's a movie that works in part because of a central performance um, by a sort of more a, a newer actor um, to most people. I mean, look, I love Natalie Portman in Perverse Mode. I, you know, I love a movie that takes on a challenge this stacked. This is a movie that's inspired by a wildly overcovered tabloid story. It really pushes the audience's capacity for empathy. It employs a metaphor about as heavy as a couple of elephants. But because Charles Melton is able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore, the whole thing comes together in something that is strange and humane and devastating all at once. Um, I really, it's the movie that in a weird way reminds me most of my favorite film from last year, Tar. I loved it. Not the Bradley Cooper film Maestro about the composer who really loves uh, what's, uh, I, I I have to say, I, uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, the, the conductor who loves Mahler, Mahler. Uh, May December is an interesting movie that just didn't work for me. It's also how I feel about Asteroid City. There's a lot of movies like that this year for me. I feel like I'm going to get, I'm going to feel like that a lot while you guys are discussing your list. Uh, all right, Peter. Uh, for number eight, I have American Fiction. It is a sharp, incredibly well-acted film about the book publishing industry, about expectations for people, uh, about the media environment, and it is by a first-time director, Cord Jefferson. It's charming, and it's funny, and it's a little bit sharp-elbowed, but like sharp-elbowed while wearing Nerf pads on your elbows, right? So part of what's, what's great about this movie, I think in some ways a little bit of a shortcoming as well, but part of what's great about it is that there is a fundamental niceness, a sort of geniality, a, a warmth towards all of the characters and towards all of the perspectives that are on display. This is a movie that could have been quite mean-spirited, and it isn't, and yet it in being not mean-spirited, in being nice, it doesn't sacrifice, um, I think, uh, very much of its kind of satirical power. I don't know if it's quite a great movie, but it's a very, very good one, and it's a really promising start for a first-time director. I think we're going to review American fiction properly at some point. I here. certainly hope so. 
it's a good movie. People should see it. So it, it is finally hitting the it's finally hitting theaters in in Dallas on Thursday of, of this week. So, uh, you know, more more folks will get a chance to see it. Uh, so I, I think we're going to we'll end up doing an episode on American fiction. I, I feel pretty confident about that. I'll save my thoughts until then. Number eight. Talk to me. It's a horror film from uh, A24. A24 does their best work in the low budget horror realm. Uh, about a evil hand that transports really spirits to people to talk to them. The thing I like most about this movie is just how incredibly mean-spirited it is. And this is kind of a, a running theme in some of these early uh, entries for me, is that it is it doesn't let anybody off the hook. And this is a very, very different from American fiction, which I think does let a lot of people off a lot of hooks. Um, this is a movie that just kind of punishes people, whether they deserve it or not. And I, uh, I like that. I like that nastiness in a movie. So, all right. Uh, number seven, Alyssa. Priscilla. In the year full of misbehaving dolls, I think Kaylee Spaney's performance as Priscilla Presley is probably the saddest. And it's no surprise that Sofia Coppola would make a wonderful movie about girlhood, even a girlhood as sort of strange and distorted as Priscilla's became after Elvis Presley arrived in her life. But even by those standards... I love her just meticulous recreation of this lush, plush, soft prison. Uh, and I'm so glad that we have this as a companion piece to Baz Luhrmann's Elvis, which a movie that was a movie that I was kind of charmed by against my will. Um, the existence of both movies is, I think, a reminder that there can be a lot of ways to tell a true story about the same people and events. And more particularly that it's important to have a movie ecosystem that can support very different filmmakers working in very different modes and arriving at very different facets of the truth. Um, the biopic gets maligned in a lot of ways, but it can be an incredibly sort of creatively rich space. And I thought Priscilla was just sort of tremendously calibrated and performed. Priscilla is the movie that, uh, spoilers, didn't make my list that I most felt like should maybe have made my list. All right, uh, Peter, what is your next entry? For the number seven slot, Godzilla Minus One. It is maybe the best Spielberg movie not made by Steven Spielberg. It's a sort of inverted Jaws-style take on Godzilla, and it does two things really right. First, it is existentially terrifying, just a reminder of how scary a giant monster attack would actually be, without being too bleak. Um, and then secondly, thematically, it's a great movie about how self-absorbed and indifferent governments won't save people when the crisis comes, because in the end, people have to band together to save themselves. Godzilla Minus One did not make my list. Say it, spoiler again. Um, and I, it's it's one I kind of wanted to just because I really like I really like the idea of pairing Godzilla Minus One and Oppenheimer because Oppenheimer is very much a, a sort of apology for using the nuclear bomb in in its own way. Like a you know, we can we can discuss the ethical implications of that another time. Um, but it, Godzilla Minus One is very much in its own way, uh, a, a way of saying, sorry for making you use it by sacrificing all of these people and fighting to the last man. Like the government, the government was bad in doing bad things. And we are, we, we, we regret a lot of that. All right. Uh, let's see. Number seven for me was, 
Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, which uh, in, a, in a year that kind of signaled the death of the mainstream comic book movie, uh, this is the one that stood out it, 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 solely because it just looks like nothing else. Um, and, and what I mean by that is it looks like a lot of different things at once. It's not like any individual discrete part of this looks like nothing else, though some of the Spider-Gwen stuff early on was, was truly... I had not seen anything like it before. But it, just the way it all came together visually is like nothing I've ever seen or experienced before. And I love that sort of creativity. And that is the sort of thing I look for at the at the movie theater. Uh, Lissa, number six. Barbie, this movie shouldn't exist. Even if it existed, this movie shouldn't work at all. I am going to be annoyed if and when America Ferrera, an actress I like a lot, wins an Academy Award for a speech and a role that are the weakest part of the movie. But goddamn, the fact that Greta Gerwig got this particular movie with this insane plot and the wildest closing line ever to appear in a billion dollar film made is just such an insane accomplishment that I love it. I just love it. Margot Robbie is incandescent as the world's most fetishized piece of plastic. Ryan Gosling is one of our greatest comedic actors and Greta Gerwig is a mad genius. Number six, Peter. Uh, for number six, I have May, December. It is an incredibly psychologically complex movie about the difficulty of knowing anyone, including and especially yourself. It's also enthralling. I was just riveted by this film, watching these characters go through life, totally certain that they knew who, who they were and what kinds of relationships they were in with other people, and also... Uh, also constantly revealing the ways that they didn't know themselves and the ways that they didn't understand their own uh, most intimate relationships. All right. Number six for me is Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, and this is, it's its interesting to think about top tens, not so much as, you know, set in stone things that can never shift, but as as snapshots of where where you are at any given point in your viewing lifetime. I expect this movie to kind of move up the list as the years go on, uh, in part because it's a late classic from a great master, Martin Scorsese, um, but also just because, you know, watching the first time I watched it, it's an extremely effective movie, but it's extremely effective at being deeply repellent. Uh, and that can be unpleasant. You know, some movies like that are fun to revisit and some movies like that are important to revisit um, and, and don't necessarily sit right the first time. It's also weirdly, and this, you know, I, I feel like this is a mildly controversial thing. I'm not the only person who has said it, so yell at other people as well as me if you want. It's also very funny. It's like it's it's like weirdly Cohen Cohen Brothers esque, oh, yeah. darkly funny. Um, and all I these like idiots out there who don't realize quite how stupid they are. Yeah, it's it's just it's really it's really uh, a, a kind of an amazing achievement. And I I. I I look forward to watching this again in two or three years. I'm going to let it sit for a while, come back to it, and I'm sure it will be great and will probably move up my list in the time. The inter intervening years. All right, uh, number five, Alyssa. Top five. Um, and here's where I think it's possible that recency bias enters my list, so I just want to be transparent about that. At five, I have Poor Things, which um, is another movie like Barbie and also like Megan, which I had a sort of an honorable mention on this list, that is a movie about a misbehaving doll to a certain extent, right? It's a movie that, you know, 
I cannot imagine reading the just the like the paragraph long pitch for this and being like, yes, this absolutely makes sense. Like Barbie, it's also anchored by just an indelible central performance without which the movie absolutely would not be possible. And, you know, I think a lot of people see at first glance the sex, obviously, the toddler like plate tossing, the, you know, desire to just go punch an incredibly annoying baby, the socialist brothel. But what I think Emma Stone actually should be recognized for in this movie is the way that she compresses a whole life into sort of two hours and 10 minutes, plays it out in a single body. Again, it's a very funny movie. It's silly in some ways. And... I appreciate a film with a high degree of difficulty that sticks it as effectively as Poor Things did. Peter, number five. Killers of the Flower Moon. It is an epic about sin and evil and the impossibility of redemption. Scorsese's film captures the intractability of evil in individuals, but as well as, but in societies as well. Um, and this is this is a movie about the darkness in the heart of man and the inability to to confront it. I, I uh, it is a movie that I had I w- that I liked when I saw, but I've been thinking about more and more as uh, as the months have gone on. And it's a movie I, I I I haven't seen it a second time, but that I very much plan to return to. All right, number five for me is You Hurt My Feelings, which is uh, a movie about writers living in a city who are dealing with imposter syndrome. And it's like, uh, I, I can't imagine what that would be like, frankly, but it, you know, it really puts me in their headspace. You know, this idea that you, you, aren't, you aren't really quite as good at what you do as, as you say. I, I, I wouldn't know what that's like. But it's a, it's a pretty fascinating glimpse into that mindset. Um, loved it a lot. Julia Louis-Dreyfus just gives one of my favorite performances of the year. Also, Tobias Menzies, who plays her husband, a psychiatrist, who, again, is not quite sure if he's very good at his job either. Uh, just does wonderful work. I've loved him ever since uh, Rome. He he was uh, one of the – he played Brutus in Rome, and he's just been – he's been fantastic ever since and everything else. So uh, that's my number five, You Hurt My Feelings. Number four, Alyssa. Ferrari, which I'm excited to talk about in the bonus because I think there's just a lot of impeccable filmmaking in it. There is a series of shots where Adam Driver and Shalane Woodley's faces are made to sort of echo the layers of, you know, the Italian horizon that is just one of the, is sort of gentle and subtle and one of the most sort of painterly things I've seen on film this year. I also appreciate that it is a movie that's not about the thing that you think it's going to be. It's sort of a movie about auto racing, but it's actually a movie about marriage. And... It is a mature, kind of ugly movie about marriage and grief and partnership in a sort of, in a deep and profound sense. And yeah, I mean, if Adam Driver is in a movie, it's probably going to be one of my top 10 of the year, mostly because of Adam Driver. We're just so lucky to be watching him work. I just feel incredibly fortunate about that. I'm super stoked for when he uh, ends up uh, uh, like as the leading man of the MCU for the next decade, and when he, you know, as the uh, as a Mr. Fantastic. Yeah. I, once again, my my long standing repeated refrain here is: if you're counting on the Fantastic Four to save your 
studio, you're in a lot of trouble. All right, uh, we'll talk about Ferrari more on the bonus. Uh, maybe maybe more if Peter picks it. Number, number four, what do you got, Peter? In the number four slot, I have Past Lives. It is a subtle and human and incredibly visually intelligent film. It's just totally taken with this very small, very human story and the... The intricacy of the the shooting and editing choices in this movie, it just kind of blew me away. And it's a reminder of how much you can do visually, even with a relatively small story and a relatively small budget. All right. Uh, number four for me is The Covenant. Guy Ritchie, he made he released two films this year. Uh, there was Operation Fortune, Ruse de Guerre, which I enjoyed, but is fairly slight. And then The Covenant, which is the better of them because it's more profound, frankly. I mean, it, it is unlike any other Guy Ritchie picture, frankly. It is deadly earnest. It is completely bereft of irony, right? This is a story about an army soldier whose life is saved by an Afghan interpreter, and then that Afghan interpreter is abandoned into a life of torment and probably torture and death at the hand of Taliban thugs. Um, and it's about, it is about the incredible debts we incur from people and struggle to pay back. If you want to look at it uh, on a broad level, on a very specific level, it is about a very specific American failing uh, of the last few years here and something I think more people should be made aware of and hopefully folks will see this movie and learn a little bit. All right, uh, number three, Alyssa. Uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse with an honorable mention for the boy and the heron. Look, I'm a sucker for a movie that takes the lives of children seriously, and especially one that is clear-eyed about the fact that kids experience grief and terror on a level that is sort of profound and important. Uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is only half a movie, um, and the fact that it was half a movie was kind of a delightful surprise. But it's half a movie with such beauty and joy and irrepressibility and real weight and sadness that I I found it just as powerful and irresistible as many whole movies this year. The images of Miles and Gwen walking around a dome and contemplating the inverted New York skyline has stayed with me all year. I think it's I think it's the most beautiful thing I saw on screen all year. Spider-Punk is an ingenious creation. I cannot wait for my kids to grow up enough to share these movies with them. Um, I just cannot wait. Peter, number three. Anatomy of a Fall. I think I'm, again, the only person on this pod who has seen that movie. But this is a movie about doubt and evidence and uncertainty, the difficulty of really knowing much of anything at all. The central storyline is that there is uh, a, a woman's husband is found dead. And then it becomes a question, did she push him out of their uh, sort of half-built French chalet or did he just fall? And the, the movie takes place mostly, the middle of the movie takes place mostly in a courtroom. And so you have this sort of competing sets of evidence for, oh, she pushed him or, oh, it was just an accident. She couldn't possibly have pushed him. Uh, in the end, its most audacious move is to suggest that even the evidence we are all most confident of, which is our own memories and our own experience cannot really be relied upon. It's almost impossible to just to know anything with any kind of certainty in this world. Uh, great riveting courtroom drama about, about the difficulty of, of being certain about really anything that happens in the world. Number three for me is John Wick chapter four. And, and this is, it's interesting. I, I'm a little surprised at myself, frankly, for how high this movie is because it may be my least favorite in the series. And I have a lot of like little nitpicks with it. Basically, every scene needs to be about 15% shorter. 
um, to really, uh, it, it's, it's, it's lumbering. It's lumbering. And despite that, it has like, it had three or four of my favorite just moments of the year. Like there's a, I, I, I look back at the year in movie going. And one of the things I most remember is sitting in the theater, watching the overhead dragon's breath shotgun fight that kind of looks like a overhead video game shot almost. And just laughing to myself, like gleefully, maniacally laughing to myself as that shot kept going. It just kept going and, kept, and I was just like, how much longer can they do this? Because it, it's and it's a technically fascinating shot too. It, you know, it's crane kind of up a stairwell, then to an overhead. And then it just, it is a, I, I could probably, I'd watch a whole making of feature just about that shot um, and how great it is. But I, uh, I, 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 again, this, it's, it's a movie that, I, I, I think it's probably the worst of the series and it's still pretty great. And I love watching, uh, I just love watching these scenes and sequences come together. Even if, again, a little too long. All right, number two, Alyssa. I can already hear both of you reacting on the other end of the microphone. Um, but my number two pick is Oppenheimer, which I think is without a question, the best movie of the year, but is not quite my favorite movie of the year. Um, the whole thing is just a remarkable achievement. I love seeing David Krumholtz sort of come into his own as a middle-aged character actor. Killian Murphy is great. Robert Downey Jr. just walks away with the damn thing. The switching between black and white and color is the kind of thing that could easily be pretentious in the hands of a lesser filmmaker, but Nolan manages to make it totally experiential. And it is a masterpiece of sort of moral despair. I really want to see him make a small movie adaptation of Michael Frayn's Copenhagen now because I think it would be an incredible companion piece. But um, I think he's probably not going to do that. I think it's tremendous. I'm really excited to see it again. Um, and I went back and forth about where it belonged. But that slight deficit in my affection relative to my admiration was what kept it at number two. Peter. Uh, my second favorite film of the year was The Killer, David Fincher's dark, funny, minor masterpiece about a professional assassin. This is a movie that, like actually quite a few of the movies on my list uh, this year, is uh, about the lack of self-knowledge. And it uh, ends up getting at what ended up being the big theme of my list, uh, which is that people don't know themselves. And people have a different perception of themselves uh, than, than, well, than, than, than people who are not themselves have, right? Um, and it, this movie just has all of the Fincher hallmarks that I love that have made him my favorite living director. It's the incredible slick cinematography, the great brooding score by Trent Reznor and Atticus Finch, who are uh, Nine Inch Nails. Um, so it's just incredibly rewatchable. You know, I saw this in the theater for the first time, but I've watched it several times on Netflix since then. And I just enjoy the hell out of this movie every time. It's propulsive. Uh, it's funny. It's so it's I think it's Fincher's funniest movie. It reminds you of uh, like the the darkness and sort of the the sickness of his sense of humor. Uh, I, I just loved this movie. And I know that I will watch this one, you know, another half dozen times over the next couple of years. Yeah, the killer is fascinating because uh, again, it's another. It's a movie that has a couple of my favorite sequences of the year. That kitchen fight, the the nighttime kitchen backlit uh, under lighting fight, is just one is one of the best lit sequences of the year. 
it's funny because your pick here uh, is a, a, a not so sato voce critique of the the capitalist system that we all exist under. Some would say thrive under. Uh, I, I am so is mine. Blackberry. Blackberry is my number two movie of the year. I love, I love this movie for a number of reasons, but the biggest is the performance by Glenn Howerton. Now, folks who don't know Glenn Howerton, uh, you're missing out. You you haven't been watching It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia for the last 15 years or whatever. Uh, And that show is fantastic, and he is wonderful as as, uh, essentially sociopathic uh, twin brother slash bar owner uh, of this this bar in Philadelphia. But the the character he plays in this movie is named Jim Balsilli. He's a a Canadian capitalist banker, etc., who is it, this is the role he has been building to on that whole that that show all year and of all the of all the product picks that were released this year movies like Air and Tetris and Flame and Hot Blackberry is by far the best of them uh, because it has by far the best character I, I'm sure somebody else could have played this character but Glenn Howerton again just absolutely crushed it if, if he is not getting he's not going to end up getting uh any award season consideration and that makes me very upset because he deserves it it's a wonderful performance I, I suggest everyone check out this movie uh if you can all right uh, Alyssa number one number one movie of the year Alyssa Rosenberg past lives I have not been able to stop thinking about this movie since I saw it, uh, in part because how the hell is this a debut movie? This is, uh, you know, this is Celine Song's directorial debut, directorial feature, uh, and it is so beautiful and carefully calibrated and thoughtful. From that, you know, early scene of the two young characters diverging on slightly different paths as they go home from school before one of them moves to America to, you know, the shots on the Brooklyn waterfront with the carousel in the background. This is a beautiful, delicate, just impeccably made movie with three gorgeous performances at the center from Tao Yu, Greta Lee, and John Magaro. It is, it's a movie about decency and regret. It is in some ways like Jane Austen's persuasion. It's all about sort of restraint and character and choice. And God, just a scene in the bar with these three characters, you know, drinking till the early hours of the morning on what all of them know is going to be a pivotal night. I just, I think it's remarkable. I loved it. It is so human. Um, And you can be perfect on a big scale like Christopher Nolan. You can be perfect on a small one like Celine Song is here. But for me, it is just the movie of the year. I am surprised that both of you have rated this film as highly as you have. I I guess I shouldn't be because lots of people are. But it's the second best movie that A24 released this year about a woman writer in New York City with relationship troubles. The first, of course, was You Hurt My Feelings, my number five pick of the year. All right, uh, number one, Peter. Oppenheimer. I liked a lot of other movies in 2023, but I think this is the only one to truly astound me. It is the total package, visually and narratively ambitious, with great performances and the year's best score. Sorry, Reznor and Finch, as much as I like what you guys did with The Killer, uh, this is this is the, the movie that just has the soundtrack to beat. Part of what is so impressive about this movie is how technically proficient and even odd it is. I mean, I don't know that we have seen a movie 
that is working at this level of uh, of kind of technical ambition, but also manages to be incredibly accessible and approachable. I don't know if we've seen anything like it since maybe JFK, which is about the only thing that comes to mind is in terms of like, this is a movie with a bunch of different film stocks, black and white, uh, you know, uh, different uh, aspect ratios. This is a movie that is not designed to go down, like on paper, I should say. Like if you someone told you about this movie, you would say, that's not a big audience movie. That won't go down easily. People will think that is too difficult and too weird. They won't get it. And yet this movie just washes over you. It is absolutely a mass appeal blockbuster and designed to be. And the fact that Nolan was able to pull this off, I mean, this movie just shouldn't kind of shouldn't work, right? It, it is, it is uh, you have to roll 10 out of 10 every time to make this work. And Nolan did. Nolan just pulled off every single element. Uh, I think even the things that I thought were a little bit weak when the first time I saw it, uh, some of the dialogue, which is a little bit expository at times, especially in the middle, uh, that, that when, I, when I went back and watched it again, all of that fell away. And I, I think I saw what Nolan was doing. He is actually, the, the expositoriness of the dialogue is real, but he's also just, communicating an absolutely incredible amount of information about the process of making the bomb, also about the complicated politics in two different decades of what's going on, also about all of these individual characters who he wants you to understand and uh, and and get uh, without just stopping and giving you, an, you know, uh, like, here's a, a card that explains who this person is. And you watch this movie, and especially the second time, you sort of see what's happening, and there's this point an hour and 40 minutes in or so of this two-hour and 40-minute movie where you realize that early on you were a little confused about some stuff, and now you're not. And it's actually, yes, uh, if you, you could go back and diagram all the bits where you, where you learned this, where you learned that, but actually it's like you didn't, you didn't know you were learning all this stuff. You didn't see it all coming together, and somehow or another, Nolan is working in something like the way that people learn or that people, I don't know, he has captured the way that people, he has captured a, a style of cinema that transmits information in something like the way that people actually just kind of think, which is all these chaotic bits floating out there, floating out there and floating out there. And then at some point you just realize, oh, I actually get this. I know all of this, which is actually, if you have ever read anything about like the world's most famous mathematicians and physicists, actually how they kind of describe the process of it's this abstract thing, this abstract thing, this abstract, you don't get it. And then at some point it all just clicks together and you realize what you have in front of you and you can explain it clearly. And that's what Oppenheimer does, except for cinema rather about the nuclear bomb rather than the actual nuclear bomb. It's an amazing achievement. It's the best movie of the year. Number one is definitely Oppenheimer. I mean, it's it's the only movie uh, that I watched this year that I immediately realized, like, oh, this is best of the decade material. Last year, there were a couple of pictures like that. Uh, you know, everything, everywhere, all at once, and Tar both struck me as like potentially in that category. But this year, this year, I, there's been a lot of movies that I really liked but didn't quite love or didn't think quite nailed everything. And this just nailed everything. It's it's fascinating to watch all of the elements of Christopher Nolan's. Uh, technique and career kind of collide together in this thing. You know, people have said, oh, this is like a, it's like a comic book movie. You've even got Oppenheimer putting on his suit, putting on his bat suit, but it's a fedora and, you know, tying his tie and striding out onto the, onto the, the street of the town that he himself has built to, to build this terrible weapon. But like on top of that, it's the editing, it's the score, it's the, it's the amazing actors showing up for 
two minutes of screen time. Um, it's it's everything. Everything. Gary is- Oldman's role as the president here is just perfect. And I think he did that in like there was like one day of filming or maybe two or something. They shot it in one day. They shot it in one day. Yeah. No. Oldman. Oldman shows up for a minute. Casey Affleck shows up for a minute. R- Rami Malek shows up for a minute. All of those guys have best actor Oscars. The, the ratio of screen time to best actor uh, talent in this movie is horribly skewed. It's it's there's nothing nothing like it has ever has ever happened before. And the score, as Peter mentioned, I I just will throw it on in the car or when I'm writing and just listen to it because it's so it's so so good. And like it really cannot be. Peter touched on this, but it cannot be stressed enough that Christopher Nolan has made a, he made a three hour R rated biopic that's half in black and white. It features nothing but scene after scene of dudes talking to each other about science and politics and whatever. And that biopic not only earned enormous critical acclaim, but it also grossed nearly a billion dollars worldwide. Once this comes out in Japan, it will probably cross the billion dollar mark. It's it's a critical and it's a commercial smash. And for good reason, because it's great. It's just great. That's it for this year's list. I don't know. What do you guys, any any surprise omissions? Was there anything you expected from, from us? Where did we let each other down? I don't know that where we let each other down, but I do feel like it's a little odd that none of us uh, put the holdovers on our list. That movie has gotten a lot of attention from critics, especially critics that I like. And I liked that movie and it just did not rise to the occasion for me in the way that these others did. I have not seen it yet. So I just, again, really. So it might be on Alyssa's list this year. On her revised list when it comes out in March. Yes. As, like, tied for number three or something. I th- I thought the holdovers was fine. It's it's another one of these movies that where I like I I more or less enjoyed it and there was some stuff that's really great in it, but it also just like I was like, yeah, this is fine. This is that's how I felt about so much of the end of the year stuff. Yeah, I feel like we should go back and look at previous years, but this definitely feels like the year of the podcast where there was the most divergence between us. Um and yet I feel like the lists are very they're a very accurate reflection of what we each like in movies, right? I mean, I'm inclined to give points for sort of girlishness, for just sort of crazy audacity and performances that um, kind of make something happen and fizz together. You know, I, I I feel like this is very true to all of us uh, in a way that I kind of enjoy. And I think that's partly a, a result of the the quality of the movies themselves. I, I actually agree with Sonny. I I found a lot of movies that were in this sort of B plus A minus zone this year of like, this is pretty good. It's not even that that's fine. It's like, this is a better than average movie. I'm happy to see this movie. But it was really only the top three or four where I was like, oh, I just walked out and I was like giddy in that way that I that I get. And even, even thinking about Anatomy of a Fall or Past Lives or The Killer, all, which I, I really liked those movies and I will definitely watch all of them multiple times. It's only Oppenheimer that's in my, that's sort of like sitting with me as like, a, oh, wow, I kind of can't. It's not just that that movie was great. It's that I can't believe it exists. And that's what always, what I always want from it. Like the, the best movies is like, how did that happen? I couldn't, if somebody had described this and said, and it will be great a year ago, I would have been like, no, it won't be like that. That movie is going to have, it might be interesting, 
But that movie's going to have problems. And when a movie somehow or another surpasses, like, what I can imagine working, that's what I... That's what I always uh, gravitate towards most, and that was Oppenheimer. It was this thing that where every single element was a was a ten out of ten difficulty, and Nolan nailed every single one of them. And it's really it's it's really impressive. All right, that's it for this week's show. Twenty twenty three, interesting year for movies. Hoping twenty twenty four is just as interesting uh, as we as we discussed last week in our bonus episode. You know, there's a lot to look forward to. Uh, so we'll be here week after week for, for y'all, for the people, you, the people. All right, many thanks to our audio engineer, Jonathan Siri, without whom this program would sound much worse. Make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode. Tell your friends a strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If you don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. 